This is the Truth Warrior Podcast with your host, David Whitehead. In the uh, problem of Atlantis, I think there are a number of points that have not been generally considered. We think of Atlantis as an island, probably somewhere in the Atlantic, and probably about in the location of the present Azores Islands. But actually, Atlantis was a diffusion. If you buy a map now of the world as it is today, we can say that that is the modern uh, distribution. But to have a map of Atlantis as it was in the time of its glory, you would have to have a map of the entire planet because it was a distribution. Continents rose and fell. Islands came up and went down. Great land shifts occurred. And the Atlantic distribution of land was far more important and far more far-reaching than the mere problem of an island somewhere in the ocean. So we have to think of Atlantis in relationship uh, to a complete pattern of the planet. As Plato clearly points out, the island of Poseidonis, which we now think of as Atlantis, was the last fragment of a great empire. It was the last surviving part and is supposed to have disappeared under the ocean about 12,000 years before the Trojan War, which would make it about 15,000 years ago. Now, in connection with the problem of Atlantis, I think the next thing we have to study is the name. Plato refers to the mysterious empire as Atlantis. He probably received this name, or secured it, from Solon, who in turn had received it from the priests of the Egyptian temple at Thais. Now, the word Atlantis, or its root, is not Egyptian, and it is not Greek. No one seems to be able to trace the origin of the name. It appears on two very important phases of ancient mythology, Atlantis and Atlas. And the root is ATL, Atal. Now if we look to find the language in which that word or that root is permissible or was used, we find we'd have to come to the Western Hemisphere because Atto was one of the month names of the Mayas. It also has more than just a name significance. Its glyph, or its symbol, is a deluge. This seems then to give us the real basis of our word, that we are dealing with a term that represents a world experience, that various countries were involved in it, that the circumstances were known around the entire planet and that the name that has survived to us today is probably based upon the records on the Western Hemisphere. Now this was a long time ago, uh, long before the coming of the Spaniards, but the records even go much further than that. According to the Chinese, the previous existence before our present coming to this earth uh, was destroyed. The previous world was destroyed by water. 
a tremendous deluge. And in the I Ching, the eight trigrams, basic trigrams, correspond to Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three wives, were the eight who were saved. And this is exactly what the Chinese tell us. So the story goes around, here and there and everywhere. It's a very interesting story, but what does it really mean? Is it merely an archaeological curiosity, or does it have some dynamic value for us today? Does it have some value for us today? We're going to be talking about Atlantis. Welcome, everybody, to Truth Warrior. I'm so happy to be here with you. And we have the great Michael LaFlem joining us once again. This is round two, uh, following up on a previous show that I did with him on Atlantis, which you should definitely go back and check out if you're new to this subject, if you're curious about this subject. And I definitely want to point out uh, my guest book. I'm going to pull this right up before we go here because I want you guys to see it. You got to go to Amazon. You got to pick this up. It's called Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy. And what I really love about this book is that the way that Michael has pulled a lot of these different aspects of the story together, the history, the various theories on the matter, uh, talking about Edgar Casey and just bringing all these different elements into this very deep mystery that I've always been fascinated about. I know many of you guys listening, I've been fascinated about, but I like this book because it's broken down like very advanced concepts, very academic stuff is broken down in layman's terms. I could give this to my grandma. I could give this to friends of mine that have never heard of this before. They all just think it's some Disney movie, uh, but there's something more real behind this ancient history that might give us some more indications about our origins, some of the lost mysteries of the past, uh, the missing chapters of human history, and then the focus of today's show, which is, are there parallels between the fall of Atlantis in these ancient legends and the time that we're in and the, the fall of the deep state and all this stuff that we're seeing happen around us. So, so much to talk about. Michael, always a joy to have you. I'm so glad you're back. Welcome. Thank you, David. And what a tremendous uh, intro lecture. Um, and I think <clears throat> it's a really great way to introduce the subject, um, particularly in these days when, um, you know, coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, more and more interest seems to be rising in this, you know, antediluvian civilization we call uh, Atlantis. And I absolutely agree. Um, with that presentation because that was one of the main reasons um, I wrote the book was to kind of clear up a lot of the confusion with just the term and the, the search for what exactly are we looking for a circular city? Are we looking for a continent? Are we looking for a large island, a group of islands, a global civilization? And so that's what I really wanted to uh, spend time a little bit uh, with you today to kind of clear that up. Um, because in the, in the age of, uh, you know, TikTok shorts, it's very difficult to convey that. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that it requires a lot of, um, kind of legwork. You know, it took me seven years to compile the list of, you know, 400 references or whatever that I had in the book and to really piece the story together because it's a story that, you know, if you want to take Plato as the classic point of departure, although there are stories that come before Plato, and I point that out. So if people think, you know, Plato invented this, that's just simply 
not the case. There's a lot of Platonic sources that mention Atlantis, albeit not in as much detail. But if we take Plato as a point of departure, you know, you're talking 360 BC when he mentions it in his two dialogues, Critias and Timaeus. So, you know, 2384 years ago. Um, and that's really how long the story has been on the minds of people, which, I mean, I can't think of another story beyond, say, biblical narratives or things like that that have endured for so long. And so in and of itself, just to jump in there real quick, just to jump in real quick, Michael, just to add to that, you could also relook at the biblical narratives and the ancient record of all the world, really. And you could frame it in this discussion Mm. of these lost periods of time, like Atlantis, there's many names that have been given to this lost chapter of human history, really. So it kind of reframes everything we're looking at, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things where the the idea that this is, you know, purely mythical, it, that idea itself is a fairly modern idea. Uh, most ancient thinkers did not believe this was mythological in the, the way we would today perceive a myth as, you know, a fiction, let's say. I don't like myth because myth originally means a story. It could be factual, could be, you know, fictional. But the idea that this is a, like you said, Disney fairy tale is a modern idea. And it really is like 25 to 40 years old, that idea that it's pure fiction. Um, mm. As I always remind people, the mainstream oceanographers in 1877 who found the Mid-Atlantic Ridge when no one knew it had existed, um, and they used you know soundings on a ship, the Challenger, when they were mapping the Atlantic Ocean. The first thing they did when they returned was hold a press conference in London, I believe, and they published their findings. And I cite this, you know, paper that they published. And what was the name of the paper? Glimpses of Atlantis. And they themselves said, um, you know, it appears now that this story that Solon, you know, transmitted through Egypt down on to Plato and, you know, thenceforth to the Greeks actually has some bearing because we did find a large mountain range that would have been above water at the time of Plato mentioned this destruction around 9600 BC. You know, and these were mainstream oceanographers. They weren't new age channelers. <laughs> these were the people that discovered the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Um, and so I like to show people that although the book, one of the kind of uh, novelties of the book is that I do incorporate a lot of um let's say, clairvoyant or remote viewing evidence when it aligns with relevant data. But the I would say 80% of the book is, you know, quite factual, quite verifiable data. Um, and I would even say the remote viewing stuff, it's not my opinion. It's not I sat on a couch and said I had a girlfriend in Atlantis. It's people who have demonstrated discoveries that they could not have known about in the 1930s in the case of Edgar Cayce, who identified an ancient river system bigger than the Amazon that traversed Central Africa. And then in 1986, they confirmed that was actually true. You know, so when he speaks about and adds detail to the Atlantean civilization, you know, predating the one that Plato and um, your lecture was talking about, which is the kind of final destruction of the large but still very reduced in size third iteration of Atlantis. Um, 
we should take that seriously because it's number one, it makes sense. And number two, there is no real way to access that time period in any kind of, you actually have to go into remote viewing and clairvoyance, um, you know, as our own government understood when they realized that remote viewing is actually as accurate and even better sometimes than satellite imagery um, in the Cold War. And the Soviet Union understood that as well. Yeah, and, and that's what's great. And I think that this is where it brings us to what we want to discuss today, which is these findings in mm. relation to this time we're in. And I've mm. looked at a lot of myths, legends, prophecies, you know, from, you know, you get to the Aztecs, you get into biblical prophecies or some of these apocryphal writings from the past where there seems to be a general consensus that there's these cycles of time or these, these events that start to unfold. However, people want to look at how they do it or why they unfold like this, but that mm. it's almost like you get this vibe, like we've been here before and it's going to happen again. And if we think right. about Atlantis, we think of, well, as he's saying, it's even in the name uh, is what Manly Hall was saying, this idea of a world experience of a great cataclysm or deluge, or even if you want to go metaphorical on that, you could say it's the <clears throat> loss of a major civilization that was an empire, right? And in that lecture, people should go check it out right. on YouTube. You just look up Manly P. Hall, Atlantis lecture. It's about an hour and a half. And he takes you through the details mm. that he had gleaned. And then when you put your book together with it and you start to look at this myth or this, I, let's just call it the ancient record, what we have. Yeah, there's missing pieces. Yeah, we can't verify certain things. Yet it's so interesting that here we are in our modern time experiencing a modern iteration of this chaotic time where the, the rulers became corrupt. And there's even Irish and Celtic mm. prophecies about this time where they're saying the men will be strengthless, the women shameless, the right. cows milkless. The, right. you know, the fire will fall from the sky. And yeah. Holy smokes. You look around. I think they're on right. to something. And that's what we're trying to look at. The about. women will be shameless. Yeah. You got only fans. The men will be powerless. I mean, go to a modern high school gym, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know? so, the, so the parallels are there. Um, that we could say if there was a peak, let's just, this is how I've always kind of thought of it. And a lot of people do mm. that. If we theorize that if there's this Atlant at lost civilization, that was very advanced that underwent some kind of cataclysm or destruction and then history resets and that's the history we learn okay and now we're here again is it a cyclical thing and can we escape the destruction this time can we survive this great deluge whether it's actual water or the deluge of corruption or whatever nuclear war or whatever can we survive and can we rebuild the civilization in the positive sense that will actually continue on? And I guess that's kind of the, we're all having fingers crossed here, but how, how would, how would you start this idea of looking at some of the parallels between the Atlantis story and what we're going through today? Mm. No, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I suppose somebody always survives, right? Um, how many, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, if you have um, that chart I sent you of the yuga cycle, that's actually, I think, a really good time to take a look at that. Um, because it, number one, kind of points directly to your question. Um, but number two, it, it also presents a kind of startling corroborating piece of evidence for what we are talking about here. 
Um, so, okay. So this is quite fascinating because if you look at this cycle, you know, the 25,800, you know, that's what the Greeks called the, you know, supreme year or the great year. Um, but it's a topic that, you know, four to five other cultures, you know, the Aztecs, uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me, um, even the Egyptians, you know, were aware of this, you know, what we would call today the precession of the equinoxes, where you know, that's the cycle it takes to go through all of the signs of, you know, the constellations, if you will. But this is a concept that comes from, I believe, the Mahabharata, you know, which predated Plato by at least a thousand years, some people think even more. And look at the date it gives for what they call cataclysmos, which is a 1,200-year period of destruction by water. And when does it end? It ends in 9676 BC. And that's the date roughly within 76 years that Plato conveyed from Solon, who got it from Egypt, right? And that is the official date in mainstream science for the beginning of the Holocene period when the Younger Dryads ended. So that should tell you right there that this idea that, oh, Plato added a decimal point, that couldn't be. It's like, no, he was telling you that the Ice Age ended in 9600 BC. He says 9,000 years before the time of Solon. Solon lived roughly around, you know, 580 BC, let's say. And the Indians were aware of that. They also were aware that during that time period, which is the same time period of 1,200 years that Edgar Cayce describes the gradual coming destruction of Atlantis, those were the final kind of millennia before the total destruction, um, that falls into that time period. That's also exactly what my source, Frederick Oliver, in his channel book, A Dweller on Two Planets, says. He says the decline started around 11,000 BC but really kicked off around 10,000 and then over the coming decades and centuries collapsed around 9,600. And so we have a geological proof that the ice age ends probably from a comet impact, which by the way, the Egyptians in Plato's dialogue who are talking to Solon tell him that you Greeks have a myth called Phaeton of a you know, young man driving a chariot across the sky who loses control of his horses and plummets to the earth and burns everything up upon it. But that's not a myth. You've mythologized it and fictionalized it, but it really signifies, in the words of the temple priest at Sais, the declination of heavenly bodies that occasionally come and erase civilization. And then you Greeks who don't write anything down in stone like the Egyptians have to begin again like children. And Solon says, you know, when did that happen? 9,000 years ago. And he was getting that message in 560 BC, 5, you know, 70. Nobody really knows what year he was there. But let's say if he was, you know, 35 years old, middle aged, it would have been around 560 when he received that message. So it's like, that's a very specific time stamp we have there that something happened. And then, as I mentioned, that's supported by mainstream geology. So this idea that nothing happened is simply ridiculous. In fact, 
if we treated this subject the same way we treat any other ancient subject, we would be astounded at the accuracy. And if you look at that chart just one more time, look at where we are today. We are in the final year of the Kali Yuga, which is the lowest point of human consciousness. So 2024 is the final year? So 2024 going into 2025 would be 2025 around December 21st would be considered the final ending of the Kali Yuga, which wow. then is preceded by 1200 years of ekpyrosis, which is a cleansing by the fire. So so we got to figure lot that out for yourself. I don't, I don't know if that means nuclear war. I don't know if that means a solar event. I don't know if that means nuclear war. But that chart was right in the past. And we would be silly to think that looking at the world today, uh, if ever there were a time to make the argument that we are at the final age of deceit, corruption, dissimulation, and the reduction of human faculties, uh, I don't think I've ever lived through a more ridiculous time in my life in 39 years. So when I saw that chart, and that chart actually comes from an excellent new book that just came out from um, his name, uh, Bibhu Dev Mishra, who, Bibhu Dev Mishra, excuse me, who is an incredible scholar. And in fact, I cite one of his articles um, from New Dawn Magazine in my book, and I, I contacted him. I was like, man, he just wrote a book in December on the yuga cycle. And, um, you know, I was just so astounded because he said, you know, a lot of people thought that it was a different time, you know, 2012 and things. And he actually was an expert on the yuga cycle. So he corrected it. He's like, actually, the accurate date for the end of the Kali Yuga is 2025. And I was like, that makes so much sense. That's the new president of the United States. That's the, you know, great reset or global revolution that's like how much more shit are the farmers going to throw on parliament in germany before the society goes french revolution too i mean we really are in it and that's also the exact you know uh i guess it would be you know twelve thousand five hundred year cycle analog to the fall of atlantis like they were destroyed by water at the end of that we are entering the 1200 years of cleansing, I guess, at which point, you know, in the year 3200, we come into Dwapara Yuga, which is the golden age, but only after 1200 years, whatever that means. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's all evil, you know, like during that cataclysmos period, that's when Edgar Casey said, yeah, things were falling apart on, you know, Poseid or Poseidonis, however you want to call the principal Atlantean island. But at the same time, that's when you had the Atlantean diaspora. So in Edgar Cayce's account, that's actually when the Giza Plateau's main pyramids were built in the year 10,400 BC, during the beginning phases of the final destruction. And that they built those in anticipation of the final destruction, which by the way, the only records we have, we have no contemporary records of how the pyramids were built, even if you believe they were dynastic, which I think is absurd. But yeah. in medieval Arabic stories, they actually talk about that. In fact, I cite those like Al-Masudi, Al-Makridi in the book. Those were medieval Arab scholars who said um, the king received a divination from the royal astronomers 
that a great cataclysm was about to befall humanity. And so he ordered the building of these structures. Um, and in Edgar Casey's account, it's the same thing. The Atlanteans knew through divination or just astrological observation that this was coming. And so an Atlantean delegation went to Giza. They selected Giza, which was a fertile, very, you know, arable area at the time. And they said, we've got to build these pyramids and mixed in with different Oh, I think we just froze a little there. Hold on one sec, guys. I'm just going to refresh this real quick. Uh, he'll come right back. Just a little bit of a connection blip. I've had a lot of storms in my area, snowstorms and stuff. So hopefully we're not too shaky today. I'm just going to message him, make sure he jumps back in. This is so fascinating. I always learn so much talking to Michael and I can't, again, I can't recommend checking out this book enough. Um, cause he's got all these details in there and that other gentleman I want to ask him about, cause I'd love to have him on. Hold on. I'm just going to message him on X. Just jump back on. There we go. Okay. He's already there. Hey, there we Sorry go. About you that. Hear me okay. Yeah. That's an old tradition of ours. You know, yeah, it just, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be me if it wasn't, you know, three drops. Yeah. No, no, no. So it could be my end too. my, everything we've been on. No, it's definitely, power. it's, it's, it's absolutely. It's the tell cell service in Mexico, which is the worst service in Latin America. Uh, okay. It really is. Well, you're coming through. I've you're coming research through that. that. Yeah, I will. Okay. I will. Yeah. You're coming through well now. Well, this is the stuff you're bringing there is fascinating. And by the way, that gentleman, you said who just released that book in December, I think you said, mm -hmm. um, maybe mm -hmm. after the show, I can see if I can get a, connection to him because i'd love to have him on and talk about that that's huge i, I can pass you his contact yeah it's a really i just i am about halfway through and i just sent him like a message because i was aware of him because uh, he wrote a really interesting article on jesus um and his travels and studies in india hmm. and i used that because there was a jesus connection to the atlantis story believe it or not um and you know i said you know, thank you. I just wanted to thank you for this great article. And then I was looking, has he written anything else? And this was his debut book. It was just fascinating because that, that timeline, you know, really was hard to deny, you know, that, that 2025, I mean, I, I don't, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you are. I don't think there's a single person on earth that doesn't think this year and next are going to be either win or lose for both sides. Oh, we feel it. I feel Whatever it. That means. Like, yeah, I feel right. it. everybody I talk to feels it. Even some of the normie friends that I have that are not even that for some reason are still not paying attention to what's happening. They're like, man, it feels like something really big is about to pop off. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Start right. Catching up. <laughs> right. Even, even Trump said, this is the final battle, you know, like yeah. as if we're in a star Wars or something. And I mean, it really, it's it's eerily you know similar i look at klaus schwab i see emperor palpatine i look at ursula van der Leyen, i see you know um just she's it, a sea witch just, she's ursula the yeah. sea witch. <laughs> i mean you can't make this up and and that's another thing i really wanted to just touch on is like you know everybody gets so scared and they get so bent out of shape but if you really step back i mean the universe has an almost perverse sense of humor, if you think about it. I mean, here are 
essentially two Nazis named Klaus and Ursula, one the president of the EU, the other the president of the World Economic Forum, telling you about their Nazi forthright plan to enslave humanity. And like people still think that's not happening. I mean, it's, it's really funny to me. And I don't fear it. I mean, it's just one of those things that's, as a student of history, um, limited success, whatever you want to call that, um, in a totalitarian regime is doomed to fail. You know, you might have to suffer through, let's say, you know, 75 years of the Soviet Union or the horrors of Nazi Germany. But it's like, these people are powerless. NATO has been destroyed in Ukraine. There's no money left. There's no ammunition left. There's no way these people can challenge Russia in any serious way unless they start just going mutually assured destruction. And even that's not guaranteed now that Russia They're has sending women to the front so lines. Like, that's how desperate they I'm are. I'm not afraid of these people. I just think that it's fascinating to watch this play out. It's just, I, I couldn't imagine going back. You know, I'm almost like, no, no, no. I wanted to get even wilder. Yeah. It I, has I'm not, I, this is not enough. Yeah. It w and it will like, that's the thing, no matter how people see this time, no matter how, what side, mm -hmm. like you said, Kansas is going bye-bye my friends. Like it's going to just get nuts. Yeah. Like, it, it's just, it can't do anything else, but go crazy. And it's no, it, that seems to me if I think of my own personal life, because that's all I can really reflect on sure. the greatest moments of change for me, or, and especially change where I grew stronger or developed new skills or found some success somewhere were very, there was a tumultuous sort of rinsing out home inside cleaning, all that stuff that had to go on with me personally. Yeah. It's like, you got to yeah. do the cleanse. You and do. I think that's what's happening. It is. It is. And you know, Part of that cleanse, it's like all the blackheads are coming out as you squeeze the face of Earth. Yeah. And it's just disturbing because you think, oh, my God. I mean, every single day you see some teacher who, you know, is a pervert and or worse. You know, every day you see another person that was on, you know, Pedo Island and it just really reminded me as I was finishing this book, you know, right up to the line that I published it, um, which would be like 2022, December was when it came out. Um, and I was writing the conclusion, you know, as this stuff was happening. And I was just like, man, this is just what Edgar Casey was saying happened at the final destruction of Atlantis with these sons of Belial, as he called them who are these transhumanist, hedonist, sexually abusing, warmongering, genetically modifying crops, people trying to bend time with a device like CERN, basically. Hmm. Weirdos. And, you know, they didn't just disappear. You know, even in the final destruction, it's not like, I think a lot of people have this idea that, uh, you know, the island sank and then, a couple people got away on rowboats. It's like, no, <laughs> a lot of people had seen this coming for five, six, seven hundred years, as yeah. many people have seen our final, you know, days coming in the last 20 years. And you know, Alex Jones has been talking about this for 30 years. Nobody listened to him until now. But it's like um, 
these groups, these sons of Belial, these like hedonistic Sith like people, um, they didn't just disappear. You know, they popped back up in certain factions in Egypt, Edgar Casey says. They popped back up in certain cults of human sacrifice in the Aztecs, you know, who inherited a lot of their, you know, sacrificial um, practices, according to Frederick Oliver's account, you know, and I well, think we should. We, this, you just said some amazing things. These are bombshells, Michael. Like, I'm so glad mm -hmm. we're doing this. You triggered me, man, with a good thing here. You said something that we've been talking about on Unslaved. I do with Michael Tessarian, who also wrote a book on Atlantis, and his was focused on the mythological record. And he added the Western um, aspect, the Irish, the Celtic, the Bach, mm -hmm. you know, these people. And mm -hmm. he said something similar because he was looking at the same data. And this, you said it very well. When the Atlantic Empire fell, the Sith of their culture, that we're dealing with today, the, the World Economic Forum, Epstein, satanic, pedophilic Hollywood cult that existed back then, they carried their black magic into the surviving areas and they fled and they, that they prop up in Egypt. And Michael identified them as what he calls the Setian Atonists. Yes. And the Setians. Yeah. This is a particular group. He's the only scholar to really talk about it like that. But just think of like, the cult of set and this is where the christians get the whole satan thing and all that right or look and, at michael aquino with the church of set right yeah he's the church of set and he's like who's a cia asset exactly and so, a, a, like a commissioned officer in the united states army yeah yeah a freak and and then you look at the woman behind him and the whole thing so there's a whole deal and so they go into egypt they set mm -hmm. a priest class there then you you tell me the aztecs there was that sacrificial cult these are the underground, yeah. and then they those lines of whether you want to think of them as genetic bloodlines, or even if you if that's too far fetched for people, and I think there's something to that. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's ideological descendant lines, like meaning, like there's ideological descendants of Karl Marx that are in your in Trudeau. I mean, come on, like ideological descendants, right? Um, and right. so there's ideological descendants that go back, just as they do go back in all these other ancient religions, they go back also through the network of these ancient cults and there's these royal bloodline families. And so right. they've preserved this knowledge and they're trying to, it, it's just so crazy that you have these stories from Edgar Casey and these other guys saying, yeah, there was this dark priesthood there right before the fall. And then they survived and went and dispersed elsewhere. And now here we freaking are right now dealing with these same bastards, right? Yeah. It is amazing. And it's really cool because, you know, Edgar Casey was talking about this. Mainly, he was talking about Atlantis. The majority of his, you know, about 700 Atlantis readings um, were right around the year Hitler came to power, 1933. Um, wow. The bulk of his readings from that topic were like 1932 to 1935. And I don't think that's coincidental either, because he even said that. He said, you know, many of the souls of these sons of Belial are back again in our day. And he even predicted in 1932, he said, unless what you would call divine intervention takes place, mm. he said, in the next decade, the entire world will be set on fire. And then you have World War II. And he even wow. predicted the players in it in 1931, I believe he gave a reading. And he said, the Aryan influence from Austria will join with the Germans and the Japanese and the entire world will be set on fire. And he predicted that 
you know, eight years before rather or eight years before Pearl Harbor, but, you know, six years before the invasion by the Soviets and the Nazis of Poland. So it's like, you know, he also predicted in real time that the Battle of Kursk, if you look at the date he's referencing, he doesn't say it, but he says there is a event on the battlefields because somebody asked him during the war mid, you know, midstream, will we win? Will the allies win? Because the Nazis are seen unstoppable. And he says there will come, you know, a time soon where basically the the back of the German war machine will be broken. He, he's not sitting in a room with Rommel and, you know, General Guderian with, you know, Hitler with that, you know, listening in on the operation, you know, and right. the Battle of Kursk, which was the turning point, you know, the Nazis could never recover and go on the offense in the East after that. And he predicted that, you know, he predicted the Battle of Kursk. And, you know, it's interesting because I try to show people that the the reason I used him um, was, number one, he's one of the most documented and studied psychics. I mean, there's an entire research institute in Virginia Beach dedicated to the study of what this man said, you know, almost 100 years ago. And, you know, he gave nearly 15,000 readings on everything from mineral deposits to missing people to diagnosing remotely where tumors were in your third lumbar cervical spine. And it's like he was studied. And I show in the book, they, a Harvard doctor, psychiatrist, went to his house with the express intent to debunk him. Dr. You know, Hugo Munsterberg. And he said, I'm here because I read about you in the New York Times and you're a fraud. And you just cherry pick things from an almanac. So he searched Edgar Casey's house. He didn't find anything but newspaper and romance novels. And then he met Dr. Wesley Ketchum, who was, I believe, a Stanford professor, who was cited in the New York Times saying, I use Mr. Casey for the most complicated medical diagnoses that even I can't fix as a medical professional. And I have a nearly 99% success rate with him. He says the only time he got it wrong was when it was like he identified an illness in a child that was in the same room hmm. as the kid that I wanted him to see. You know? But that's pretty so damn it, close. Though. You're right. And so I, I picked him because, okay, if here's a guy who can, you know, remote diagnose, can use non-local you know, trance, hypnagogic trance was his technique. He would go into a near coma state and, you know, he would have to be basically like medically supervised and very carefully brought back to waking life or he could die, you know, because his heart rate slowed to near coma state. His skin became cold. His voice changed. Um, and it was a hypnagogic trance. Um, and then in this state, you could ask him questions. It took about, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And then he would say, with his stenographer there, ready for questions. And as time went on, people started to ask, like, hey, I have a question about, you know, my past life or something. And he would usually regress you like six or seven times back from the 1930s to, you know, the, the frontier or uh, the you know, times of ancient Rome or Alexander the Great. But he started to go back further in these readings. And he would tell people things like, you were at the final destruction of Poside in the Atlantean Empire. And the person would say, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? You know, I'm a Protestant 25-year-old woman who works at Rite Aid 
in Virginia Beach in 1930. What are you talking about at Poleside and Atlantis? He said, yes. And they would ask him eventually, you know, a group came in and said, like, we're going to go for like one full mega session just on, say, Egypt or just on, say, Atlantis. And so we're very lucky that, you know, actual like people interested in that came and had the foresight to say like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity because this man's getting very old and he seems to have this gift and so they asked him things like when were the pyramids built and he said from 10,490 to 10,390 they said and how he said using the forces that make iron swim ready for questions so magnetism right and then they had asked him like well when did atlantis start and he went into this you know, very detailed thing. It used to be a continent that stretched the entire Mid-Atlantic Ridge up to the Gulf of Mexico. And they said, well, when did that end? 50,722 BC. Ready for questions. You know, and on and on and on until I read through all of these, you know, 700 readings. And many are disjointed. Many are not related. But over years, I kind of storyboarded everything on this chart. And even an intern of Edgar Casey's, who was an atheist, was kind of there just because his wife said, hey, we got an opportunity. I'm a fan of Edgar Casey. You just graduated University of Chicago. Um, let's go like, hang out with him. And so this guy who became a professional psychiatrist, Dr. Harmon Hartzell Bro, he wrote an incredible biography that I really recommend called A Seer Out of Season. I think it's the best biography. It's one of the best biographies, period. But it's his time as a you know twenty-two year old kid living with Edgar Casey in the last three or four years of his life, and he talks about it. He's like, "Yeah, we used to go fishing. We had dinner, and then I started to watch him actually do this, and I couldn't believe it." And he even says that, like, "What would my professor of you know physics say to me?" Like, how is he doing this? Because I'm actually watching him. Like, he gives an example. A guy came in with, um, like, a cataract. And, or no, a catar, whatever that is. I think is a catar. A debilitating catar is the actual thing. And he says the guy needed a special machine to treat his catar called an Elliot machine. And he said, Edgar Casey told this guy, there's three Elliot machines in Texas. Here, here, here. Just off the bat and then comes out of trance and like, okay, next, because I'm very busy now, I need another medical reading. He really just wanted to do medical readings at the end of his life because he knew he was going to probably die. And this kid, Harmon Bro, in 1943, I think, he called all these places. Like, do you, do you have an Elliot machine? They're like, yeah, we have the only one. We just got it. He called the next one. Yeah, we got the only one. He says, no, you know, San Antonio has an Elliott machine. Like, that's impossible. We just got this machine. And it was exact. And that's what made him go, okay, I need to really sit down and study this man because what he's doing is true. And it turned into a very interesting discussion from which we actually get some of the explanation because he asked Mr. Casey in a trance, what is the process you're using? And he says, I'm accessing the superconscious mind. You might call it the Akashic Records. And, you know, the rest That's I detail in the book. But it's really, I got to be honest with you, David, I didn't put much faith in, you know, this kind of material 
before I really spent years looking through the archives. And I just have to be honest, you know, looking at the data, it, it's it's much more true than not, you know. And I don't even like true or not true. It's just what's the accuracy? Well over 95 percent, you know, which should be impossible. If we're which should be impossible. It's impossible. It, yeah. You know, well, and you, you brought up something so interesting. I take what he says quite seriously when he says that the pyramids were built. And, you know, that's not an arbitrary date because it's exactly in the Cataclysmos period. Edgar Casey hadn't read the Mahabharata, which probably hasn't even translated in 1932 in Virginia in the public library. And yet he picks that date. He also picks the same date that Robert Boval determined would have been when the constellation Orion would have directly mirrored the configuration of those three pyramids, 10,450, which is directly inside the middle of the building of a hundred year period. So that's interesting. And then when you see evidence of say water erosion on the Sphinx, like Robert Schock found, and you go, this thing is probably at least 12,000 years old, because that's the last time it rained this heavily there. Then it's like, okay, we can go again to that 10,000 year you know, BC window. And then you look at the geological evidence and it's like something did happen because officially the ice age ended and just look at an ice core chart. It's like, it's freezing cold. Then it just boom. And even a mainstream geologist said, you know, look, it looks like somebody just flipped a switch on. So that's not a gradual warming. That's actually evidence of a cataclysm. And then the Egyptians say there was a cataclysm. It was called Phaeton for you Greeks. And it was a comet that struck Probably the North Atlantic, you know, uh, North American ice sheet, as many people think, you know, and precipitated just massive flooding with all the rocks and trees coming at hundreds of miles an hour, as Randall Carlson always describes. It would have been inconceivable to us, the devastation. But what's in that chart? Cataclysmos by water. So, again, it's like none of this to me is silly. It's just probably nearly impossible without the clairvoyant pieces of the puzzle to get like a real vision, you know, pun intended of Atlantis. Like what was it really like on the ground? And so for that, you got to read the book because Frederick Oliver's account of walking around Poside at its peak and seeing the monorails and the flying ships and how they were powered and what university was like in Atlantis. I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable what he said. And again, he was the first to put that, you know, high technology on Atlantis. And here's a kid who's 17 years old who clears, claims to be channeling a book in 1881. And he's describing cell phones. He calls them names. He says, we flew around in a veil, and the plural is velixi, which is the word for flying machine in Sanskrit stories about flying. And I guarantee you this kid didn't read Sanskrit in 1881 on the California frontier in high school. Yeah. So it's like you start to look at these channeled accounts. And again, what's the date he gives? He says, I'm going about my day in Poside, in the capital city of Poside. And he even gives that a name. He calls it Kaifel. You know, and I always wondered myself, maybe that's where capital comes from or something way back etymologically, because he says the capital city of Atlantis was actually on Poside, which he also calls Poside, and Edgar Casey calls Poside or Poseidonis, and Plato calls 
the primary island of Atlantis, but in Plato's account even, what's in the center of the circular city? A statue of Poseidon. So I think they're all talking about Poseidon. And, you know, if you pull up that little chart of, say, what it looks like in the ocean, um, if you drain the ocean 600 feet, <laughs> what you, well, what do we have here? Oh, is this the Where did Ignatius... That's the right one. I mean, when people tell me, well, where is it? Well, where did Plato say it was? In front of the Straits of Gibraltar. Okay. Does that check out? Yes. Uh, what else did Plato say? He says, well, from this island, you could even traverse to the whole of the opposite continent, which if you look at, say, you know, the light brown area is where the actual continental shelf would have been above sea level when, you know, let's say 12,000 years ago, 13,000 years ago, when the sea level was 600 feet lower. You know, so it's like, there it is. We don't really need to look much further. That's where Manley Hall thought it was. That's where Ignatius Donnelly thought it was. That's where Michel de Montaigne, a famous scholar, thought it was. That's where Plato said it was by way of the Egyptians. And... If you look at, say, the Caribbean on this chart, you'll see that where they found that sunken city off the western coast of Cuba, that would have been above level at this time as well. And many other things, you know. And so this idea of this is all made up, it's like, well, then what is that? What did we just look at if it's all made up? It's like it's not made up. I guarantee you the powers that be are aware it's not made up, just like they're aware of the reality of extraterrestrials. Yeah. I guarantee you that it's not a coincidence that the only quote-unquote historical map of Atlantis that Athanasius Kircher found, where did he find it? In the Vatican archives. That's no what way. he said. <laughs> what so, else is in the Vatican archives? That's right. And he said, and he said in his books, the Mundus Subterraneus, which is a late Renaissance book by this phenomenal Jesuit explorer and kind of like mad scientist who determined um, he was one of the first people to propose a theory of ocean currents that's actually accurate. You know, he's not like a alchemist or something. He was into these things, but he was a, like on that cusp of the division between, say, alchemy, mysticism, and like, quote unquote, professional science. He was kind of a fusion of the two. And so for him, he said, look, I was in the Vatican archives. I'm a Jesuit mad scientist. And I found this map. And he says, I copied it because I couldn't take it out of the Vatican. And I put it in my book. But he says, it said in this source that this was an original map of Atlantis recovered from Egypt probably at the time when Octavian defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and started bringing things back to Rome, like that obelisk that's still in the, like, uh, Plaza de Piazza, or I forget what it's, uh, the, the Piazza something, I forget, but there's a Egyptian obelisk, you know, that they stole from Egypt. So it's like, again, that makes sense. And again, it makes sense that there would be a map of Atlantis in Egypt, because that's where the story comes from, because they were the reboot before the final you know, stage of cataclysmos in the yuga cycle. So it, it actually, what this book was, was just like, 
you go down one area and you're like, I'm going to explore this to its fullest, even if it takes me nowhere. And I would just put it away for like a year. And then I'd be working on something else. I'd be like, oh my God, like, wait a minute. And I go back to some note I made three years ago. I'd be like, wait, what? Where did he get that map? And I'd be like, and then what did Edgar Casey say about Egypt at that time? And that's why it took so long was like, I could not have written this book if I had sat down with a little outline and, well, I got to get my two pages today. You know, this book was as much, I guess you could say, uh, you know, inspired experience as uh, Frederick Oliver's, who claims he wrote it backwards and, you know, in you know the end first and the middle. I mean, I kind of wrote this the same way. Of course, I edited it before I published it. But I look at my own notes and it's like, it's all over the place because this information was just coming at me from every which way. You know, I was just kind and of in the overwhelmed. beginning. You don't know how it connects, right? Like, no, you have no idea the way you're just no, because I wasn't going into it trying to prove a point. That's the funny thing. Right. I think a lot of people think because that's how a lot of people work in any field. I'm going to show you that this is real. I actually did it for myself. Hmm. I was just curious. I read that's the curious. antediluvian world like you, yeah. and I'm like, wait, what? Like, I didn't know any of this nine years ago. I mean, I was aware of Atlantis, but I probably would have said as a professor, well, you know, that's an interesting story, but there's no evidence of it. Hmm. Just out of ignorance, just because I didn't know. I hadn't seen the bathythermic scan of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. I hadn't read hundreds of articles from the 19th century that you know were very well-written detailing, like, yeah, look at this, look at that, look at this language similarity here. Um, and in the end, I did it for myself. I had no intention of ever publishing a book, let alone it going to number one bestseller in prehistory in July. I couldn't believe that because I thought I'm the only person that really cares about it. Maybe there's like one or two people that are really interested and they're probably like 90 years old. Um, but to my great surprise, right around the time it came out, it seems like there's been this like resurgence, um, not because of my book, just I noticed like five or six books on Atlantis coming out. And none of us had talked to each other. And we were all arriving at the same dates, just coming at it from different places. One might say, hey, I found this geological ice core. Have you seen that? No, I've never seen that. But that looks exactly like an Edgar Casey. Who's Edgar Casey? I don't use this clairvoyant evidence. Well, like, look, you know, and so the book became like pulling together this absurdly wide net, but then also presenting it like a Michael Crichton thriller novel. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Because who the hell wants to read 400 footnotes with, this is what Plato said, this is what Ignatius Donnelly said, this is what I said. You know, it's like, I wanted it to be like, actually thrilling, you know, Hmm. and fun for the masses. Oh, man, amazing story. I, I really got a lot from the way you described it, because this is how a lot of my work has gone as well. The series I've been working on, Cult of the Medics, Mm, which is breathing in these elements, right? Studying studying the the dark souls and what they're up to um but also just trying to figure out this missing gap of history right like Mm. we arrive on the scene we're born into the world we're taught what the world is we have so many other influences we take very superficial glances at these types of subjects we accept most of what we're told about them and then move on with our lives right it's all about like if you're living in canada you're just trying to make the make the bills work because everything's so goddamn inflated so that's your focus right mm-hmm. so we need people like you who are just curious that take it to the next level and go you know what 
I'm not just content with watching some history channel shit on this or just a few little YouTube videos or a mm. couple little snippets. I want to just follow my curiosity. And, and uh, when you were saying about how the notes pop out at you and you go back, I've done this for years. My note sure. app on my Mac is like thousands of notes. That's I oh. started them in like 2014 or maybe even earlier. And I go back to this day and I'm like, I thought I had something then, but I didn't know where it fit left it on the shelf and now it makes sense, you know? You know, it, I remember when it first started, it was the weirdest thing, David. I remember I was sitting with my girlfriend in, you know, on a on a roof deck in Chicago. And it, it was like, I hadn't even finished the antediluvian world, but like the first couple lines of it just got, it resonated to be so powerful. I'm like, okay. And then I started to look into this evidence and it was just like, I became, like you said, this like Danny Glover in that first Saw movie where he's, he's got the newspaper on the windows and everything, <laughs> the crime. And it's like, it was me. I just had note cards, flash cards everywhere. I'd be writing shit on my hand. I'd be leaving parties. I, I got to go home and read this. People are, What's wrong? What the hell is wrong with you, man? You know, like what is it with you and this, this thing? And I'm like, I don't know. I really couldn't tell you. It's never happened to me before. And it makes me think that perhaps some of us, you know, are chosen to kind of tell one part of a bigger story that's like almost impossibly complex, you know, and not even as any kind have, of. There's some of us that have memory of this in a way. Like I think that's we, true. Right. Like you could look yeah. at it. Remember before I was saying about sort of the dark side of the force and how they could be either some kind of bloodlines they could be ideological descendants. And then you brought up the idea that this could be the idea of reincarnation where there's a reincarnation cycle where there's these souls that are coming back and they're just reanimating the same, um, the same uh, modus operandi in the, in the current time. Well, yeah. that doesn't just go for the bad guys, right? It goes right. for maybe some of us that there's a reason we have a calling. There's a reason we have a curiosity. Why, like I'm sure, Michael, you've met people that you're trying mm. to talk to about this. And I guess our job is to just get light the spark of curiosity, right? That's and all I can sometimes do. Sometimes you just can't. Like, they're just people, no. yeah, it's fucking boring. And I'm like, well, okay, yeah. stay on TikTok and Kim Kardashian or whatever. But to me, why is it, I'm like you too. I'll leave party, like, this is boring. I want to go and yeah. something else. And it's because there's there's a deep curiosity that's there that's almost unnatural. And it makes you yes. wonder, like, are there old souls? Have we all been here before? I think we've all been here before. And I wouldn't even proclaim that I was necessarily, you know, not in the Sons of Belial, perhaps. Because, you know, as Edgar Casey points out, or as you can kind of like deduce from reading all of his Belial readings, let's say, um, you know, and what I would do is like I would read the reading and then I would make like a character sketch of that person's past life. Like, where were they? Where did they work? What was the time? And I kind of like put it together and it would build this actually, even though these readings were given over 15 to 20 years apart, some of these readings, there was an internal coherence. Like these characters seem to have, you know, very specific roles. And what was interesting was like, they weren't cartoon characters, like all bad or all good. You know, there were like Anakin type characters who were like yeah i'm good and then i'm evil too you know Something like i'm anakin but i can also be vader you know and, and the other then, way around. 
the other way around. was going down there and then they woke up and That's went, right. holy shit. Like, yeah. Yeah. And many of those people were struggling in their relationships. And Casey said to one woman, this is a really disturbing reading. And um, he said, she said, should I marry this man? You know, because I'm in love with him, like passionately, but I just, I don't know. We fight and things like this, but I just, I've never felt this way. And Edgar Casey, she just came for a regular like life reading consultation for her present day. And he says, well, in returning to the Atlantean experience, um, we must understand that you and he have met before, you know, and she's sitting there listening on the couch, like what? And he says, yeah, uh, he was one of the sons of Belial. He was a very powerful one near the third destruction of Atlantis a few thousand years before that. And you were his sex slave. And he says, you would have been as what we would call today. And this is, again, this is a devout Christian man who didn't swear. So he had to be very careful. But you can imagine the Epstein Island implications. He says, you would have been as, and the, the syntax is weird because it's a channeling. You know, he's in a, he's not conscious when he's doing this. It's just a voice coming out of him, his voice, but it's like a robotic, this type. It's, there's one recording of him that exists. It's very weird. And he said, you would be as a young woman given to all types possible of debauchery with this man um, of the very young type, he said. So her husband was an Epstein and she was the victim. And they're back in 1932 in this psychic's house. And he says, um, basically, there's a karmic bond he has to repay but it's not going to end in this life. Like what he did to you then as a son of Belial, how much he abused you on an Atlantean sex slave island is so bad that you're going to have to try this probably many, many times. But we're, we're through for now, he said. Island. Michael, yeah, but it's like, I mean, look. That documentary. Look, the, the, uh, I mean. Epstein Island. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there was another guy. Uh, and I think I'm the only person to ever put this reading in the book because, you know, there are other books on uh, Edgar Casey's son in the 60s wrote a book called Edgar Casey on Atlantis, where he cited like 50 mm, percent of the bigger readings and tried to piece it together in the 60s to make like a coherent story. Because, again, you got to remember, these readings were given to individuals, private individuals whose names are redacted. They're just given a number. And then the private secretary in Virginia, you know, if you were to get access, she has the actual name, like Dolores Smith or something. So we just see client 463, 20-year-old Protestant woman. And the date of the reading and the location. He gave some at his house, some at their house. But one guy came in and he said, and it was interesting, it was a reading given while D-Day, June 6, 1944, was taking place. And this guy was in the army, but he didn't get deployed to D-Day. So he actually came and saw Edgar Casey during World War II. Um, and this was a, on the morning of June 6, 1944, it says, in the house of, I think, Edgar Casey. And this guy said, uh, you know, I'm having problems with, with uh, finding a wife, you know. And it was like he was 21 years old. And Edgar Casey said, oh, well, that's probably because you have to break a karmic pattern. And he said, well, what's that? He said, well, you were with Cortez during the time of the, you know, conquest of the Aztecs, and you much abused the young Aztec women. 
He said, much like you abused the women from the slave caravans on the city, on the hill, in the plains, which he always refers to this. And, you know, that's referred to in the Bible as well. I think some people have suggested it could be Sodom and Gomorrah, which was in that type of situation. But he always referred, many of his clients came from this city, this kind of like caravan city that was in a crossroads in kind of biblical times near the Iranian plains, you know. And he says, you did the same thing there. You ran a harem of sex slaves and you were a corrupt merchant. But he says, nothing could compare to what you did in your Atlantean experience when you as a mage scientist, dark scientist, created an entire sex slave team of genetically modified women. And Edgar Casey was, again, he, he couldn't say what he wanted to say. And he said, and some with such monstrosities about them that gave you pleasure, but that brought great distress to them. So as I say in the book, take your wildest guess what that means, what augmentations he added and this and that and you know, because he had a technology that could actually clone human beings and add appendages and augment things using a computer, basically, is how Edgar Casey describes it. So it's like, yeah, I mean, in many ways, we are, we're already in Atlantis, you know, um, what, what's the, and I think it's a, there's a reason that this topic really came back in popular culture at the end of the Kali Yuga, because it's like, we're going into the ekpyrosis. They went through cataclysmos. And again, what's that famous quote? The fire next time. What's the first water, then the fire next time. And it's like cataclysmos and then ekpyrosis the next time. It's like the Indians knew that. The Bible knows that. The Aztecs knew that. You say Celtic legends talk about it. And it's like, how is this debatable? You know, what should be debatable is like, how much more can we know? But I'm already very far past the idea of like, when somebody says to me, you believe in Atlantis, I just look at them and I go, do you believe Oswald shot JFK? I mean, because it's like, there's still people that believe that and I'm not going to change their minds. It's none of my business. But it's like, do you believe Lee Harvey Oswald shot JFK? What does that have to do with Atlantis? It has everything to do with Atlantis. It has to do with your cognitive ability to see past propaganda. That's what it has to do with, you that's what we're, that's a mic drop. And it's funny because there's a book James Billington wrote. I don't know if this is related. It just, as you were talking about the age of fire, it's going to be fire next time. Another little spin on it. Cause we could be thinking, yeah, we blow ourselves up with some kind of thing we created. Uh, We could think about uh, solar flares or whatever, the return of the sun we've been told about literally, you could think of a lot, but you could also go with this idea that there's other predictions that this would be the battle of air, meaning that could have yes. been a way of them talking about the mind. And we're, when you think about, if I just think 2020, okay, moving to where we are now, four years later, God, mm. even four years, holy shit. Four years uh, later. It's hard maybe, to believe. Isn't it? It really so, is. It's like we've had Yuga cycles <laughs> within four years. But mm-hmm. you, you have the battle that we have been fighting has been over our mind, the domain of our mind. Right. You were That's talking right. about perception, the ability to see through lies and deception, the veils mm-hmm. lifting, all of that. Right. Um, so some of us are starting to get those, I guess you could call them clairvoyant, like intuitive 
promptings, which a lot of people couldn't explain why they just immediately had a visceral reaction to what they were being told by their governments about what was going on, right? Like, say with COVID or Ukraine or whatever, all this other stuff. And now they're explaining it by all the facts coming out, but it wasn't facts that woke people up. No, these people that no. I speak to, I'm talking That's a to great like, observation. Yeah. Like elderly people that yes, you would think you come out of the world war that, that era. So you're automatically going to be trusting the media, right? Like that's usually what you see, right. but these are people that are like, I don't study this. I just intuitively mm -hmm. knew that this was bullshit they were saying. And so yep. I go, okay. So uh, to, to bring this out to this James Billington book, he wrote a book called fire in the minds of men. And he was mm. talking, he was a congressional librarian. So he had access to the library of Congress and he went in, he wrote a book as he was talking about the encroaching communist takeover of America. And mm -hmm. he was tracking the history of revolutionary movements. Okay. And oh, it fits okay. in well, cause I brought this out in my truth warrior premium called the occult conspiracy. And this gets into Michael Howard's book at looking at what these secret societies and Masonic societies were fomenting within the belly of their mm. organizations before say the rise of the French revolution or the American revolution. And so James Billington right. just kind of sums it up with this thing of the fire in the minds of men. It means that he's like what these political oligarchs do. And even in the universities and through the media is they light the match of revolution in the public mind, but then they control mm. that revolution through the takeover of the government and everything else. And so sure. I guess I'm putting this all together to say maybe this prediction, there's a possibility that the fire age is speaking about the fire of the mind and the battle that's going to take place within each Absolutely. human being on the planet. It's just another way to speculate on that. And a comet and a solar flare and a nuclear war. But yeah, you know, I think you're... <laughs> and aliens all at the same I, time. Uh, Come on, let's just do it. Yeah, at the same time. Um, no, I, I agree. I mean, and again, you know, look... Um, it's not like uh, the Earth during, say, Cataclysmos was hit every afternoon by an asteroid. You know, it was just like a window where, look, at some point in this 1200 years, there's going to be something that changes everything. You know, and so I don't like to look at the, you know, Dev Mishra's redoing of the Yuga and say, OK, on December 22nd, 2025, uh, I better put sunscreen on because the big ones here, you know, but I think it's going to be more like maybe it gets better for my entire lifetime, you know, after because because to me, this is really th there is no worse to me that it could get from this point. Like people talk about nuclear war and things like that. And it's like, obviously, you know, w we wouldn't even want probably to live through something like that. But I'm talking about Barring a wild, one-off, mutually assured destruction. Obviously, that's the word. But I'm saying, like, within the realm of what's been happening, to me, either I'm already accustomed enough to it, like I'm aware that now I am living, or I was living, I don't live in the United States anymore, I moved far away. But it's like, I, I was aware that, like, I can't even pretend that I'm living in any even, like, Bush-era vestige of, like, constitutional republic you know at the beginning of the patriot act when people were like hey this is kind of screwed up it's like this is a no holds barred you know what it is i tell people this it's the same as living in stalinist russia except you still have twitter <laughs> really 
Right. That's the right. only difference. It's and yeah. that's why it's so weird to people because it's like the reason that regime or any regime that's totalitarian could exist is because they started in a pre-technological age where they could control the media through print or the television through three channels. This is why they can't win this time because you cannot whack a mole to everything that we've done. You can't shut down Rumble. You can't shut down Audis. You can shut down one, this, that, but it's like, it's it's too far. They they misplayed their hand because the, the architects of this are boomers. No offense. But it's like Klaus Schwab is years old. They can't like stop Klaus Schwab is 85 years old. He doesn't probably even know how Twitter works, even though he's a transhumanist. It's like he needs right. Noah Yuval Harari to, to tweet probably for him, you know? So he's probably very frustrated that these wily rebels are making fun of me and my reset, you know? And it's like, just like sit down. You know, I don't even look at that. I look at, these people are hilarious to me. You know, I look at mm -hmm. Bill Gates and everybody, oh, we gotta be, it's like, this guy's a joke. Who's taking this freak seriously? It's like, yes, of course he's done horrible things and he has these stupid agendas, but it's like, do you think it's going to, like, continue? Like, do you think these people are going to continue selling another COVID horseshit lie for another four years? I don't think this is going to work on any level. Like, disease X, all of this is just, it's its done. You know, it's played out. And good riddance, go to hell, go back to hell, wherever the hell you come from. Go back to Saturn, as Edgar Casey would say, where souls that cannot be recovered go to be burned on a template level because you fucked up so much, excuse my language, you cannot incarnate again. You go to Saturn. Oh, I didn't know he went to Saturn. That's interesting. You go to Saturn. That's what Edgar Casey said. He says, if you are irrevocably lost, you go to Saturn and it's done. That imprint is gone. And like, you're basically, that's, you know, the final thing. And he says, you have to be burned fully off to come back in any sense. And it's not really even you at that point. It's like the end of a karmic link but everybody else you can screw up pretty bad <laughs> you don't go to saturn but some of these people i'm like man you know like first of all what is your goal it's silly it's absurd it's selfish it's almost you've never read how this plays out for everybody else that's tried it you know it's ahistorical and it's so it's nice human mike and it's, it's anti-human that's, yeah, that's which, crazy is i'm which like makes you really you know? wonder like is this some sort of like pernicious AI that has taken over? Or is this like the Watiko virus, mind virus that people talk about? Or is it extraterrestrial using human avatars? I mean, I, I'm open to anything, but it's like whatever the hell it is. Um, they walk amongst it, us, Michael. They, they walk, walk amongst, amongst us. And, it's, and it's, it's a perfect, like, my God, when I saw that, again, that, that 2025, it's like, the next presidential cycle, election, you know, whatever is going to happen to Israel, whatever is going to happen in the Middle East, whatever is going to happen in Russia, whatever is going to, it's like, that is when it's going to happen. And that is the, the final battle of Kali Yuga before we go into the 1200 year interim, before the, you know, let's look forward to it, golden age in 3200, according to Dev Mishra. So I think it actually... It's not so bad, you know, like what's the worst that's going to happen? You die. Okay. If you didn't do anything wrong, you come back, reincarnate, try it again. Like, yeah. I think they're worse thing. You know, what would be worse to me would be, 
giving in to these freaks and giving in to mainstream science that says just, you know, uh, nothing to see here that we've solved all mysteries, you know, go to bed. Uh, or what about what David Grush is saying? Oh, well, he's crazy. Well, what about what Graham Hancock? Oh, he's crazy. But what about what David said in his documentary? Oh, he's a conspiracy. Theory. Oh, okay. Like that's to me worse than dying in a revolution or being, you know, inconvenienced for a few years while the rest of humanity wakes up to their slavery, which yeah. they largely imposed on themselves. I always say that. In fact, I said that in a New Dawn article. I said, you know, Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates, I actually got no problem with them. They didn't come to my apartment and get me evicted. It was my fellow man and fellow woman in the Chicago West Loop. It wasn't anybody else. It was yeah. Even in Canada, when I think of when I think of during the horrors of the the medical technocracy era, which mm. we're still in, obviously, but it wasn't Justin Trudeau coming to kick me out of Shoppers Drug Mart because I didn't want to wear a <laughs> diaper on my face. Um, it was right. Betty who watches yeah. CBC News all day and just believes whatever she's told. Right, like. Yes. This is the thing is I'm on this. I'm always a, a, more on the humanitarian side on the sense that we have been manipulated. We have been mm. lied to. Um, and there's a very pernicious overarching uh, force in this world that's seeking power and domination at all costs and wants to, mm. you know, we see that. But how much of this have we conjured in a way? If we look at this yes. as like this is a sole experiment box here, right? Yes, so we come in. Yeah, we come in. Some people call it simulation. I don't like that term, but whatever. We come yeah. in and we we are somehow there's a purpose to it all, right? However, people want to look at it. And we come into this life and we're supposed to be learning lessons over time in just in this one lifetime, let alone if we're going to bring other lifetimes into the mix. Right. And, you know, you are supposed to be grinding yourself into that diamond because of all these pressures, because of all these right. forces. So you can't. And you chose to come here. Right. According to Casey. Right. And you can't like you can't blame the weather for your mood. You can choose no. to accept that, yeah, we were just in a snowstorm, the weather sucks. No, it's not global boiling, but what but <laughs> it's a it is a choice. And and I think that's the beauty of all this is that we're learning that we have this power. Like the that's mindset right. you just described, Michael, it's very masculine, like uh mindset of, yeah, what's the worst that can happen? I'm just not gonna get taken out on my knees, bro. I'm not going to yeah. go out without a fight. Like well, that's and I, the I, I, you need, right? Yeah. And I, you know, for me, I, I was, um, unfortunately, you know, my parents uh, divorced before I was born. So I was raised by my grandfather who was a, on my mother's side, my father's side's from the Bahamas. My mother's side's from uh, Brittany, France. And my grandfather, you know, he was probably like 62 when I was born. So he was like my older father, you know? And all he used to do was teach me about his life in under Nazi occupation as a French resistance officer, you know, and it could be a movie. I mean, what, and he never complained. He never made, you know, he became a heavy drinker because of the nightmares he had. But I can't fault him for that. But, you know, he used to tell me, like, I was 14 years old and I was reading the newspaper, going to school. And then I saw Stuka dive bombers and then the bombs started falling. Then I saw the tail gunner of the Stuka wave at me as I was running down my street. 
And then the next day I was taken to a submarine base where I was pressed into work because I could operate a crane. And he said, for the next two years, I lived in a prison dungeon underneath a submarine base and fixed Nazi submarines. And all my friends were killed in the bombing and I lost my family. Then I escaped. I headbutted the guard. I jumped out of a window. I captured a you know, British Sten gun that I found some, you know, some, <laughs> some German had killed a British man in probably Dunkirk or something and stolen. He's like, I had a Sten gun and I could never hit anything with it. So I was trying to find a better gun. Then D-Day happened. I got strafed by a P-51 Mustang who almost killed me thinking I was a Nazi because it's like they had orders to shoot everything that moved on D-Day, including civilians. And he was in a captured German officer's uniform, of course. Then I fought with the army rangers. My brother died in my arms. We won the war. Of course, Russia won the war in the east, but we won the war in the west. I was 18 years old. I moved to America and on my ship to America, I got to meet General Eisenhower. And here's the picture. And he personally congratulated me, then became my president. And I lived the American dream. And I'm like, that's a pretty hard life. You're afraid of Bill Gates and my goddamn grandfather went through that? Come I've said on, it bro. before, Michael. We get to sit here and fight World War III in our bloody pajamas at home yeah. using yeah. you know, social media. Come on, like age. step it up. And I really mean the only way that you're going to win is just a mental war. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I don't, I don't even like to hear these things like Jamie Foxx was forced to take the vax. And again, I love Jamie Foxx. He's a great comedian, amazing actor. But guess what? Jamie Foxx had tens of millions of dollars before he was forced to take the vax. I was told I'm going to be evicted. I'm going to lose my job. I can't travel. I'm going to lose my girlfriend that I love. And I still didn't take that goddamn thing. So I don't want to hear it when people say I was forced or this was a victim. Unless you were held down, you did it to your damn self. So I really look at all of this as like the universe used COVID and the vaccine and all of this shit as the it still can't use pure magic so it has to work through reality as we perceive it well how would you barring a nuclear war or a comet strike how would you what would be the physical mechanism to awaken humanity and to me actually i thank the world economic forum daily thank you because there was no other way we could have done this Yep. And yes, was it inconvenient? Did many people die tragically? Did friends of mine die? My mother got sick. All of this. It could have been way worse. It could have been way worse. Because yeah. to me, what would have been worse would have been continuing down 20, 30 more years of just CNN, CNN, this president, that side, Republican, Democrat, this war, that war, that, you know, like. It's quite fascinating to me. Getting, how are we even getting this information? How are we even yeah. at this point where, like, this is what gets me, Mike, when people get down and they get all black-pilled about everything, okay? I'm always like, okay, hold on a little bit longer, okay? That story you told about your grandfather, your uh, yeah. your family member there, and I've had my family tell me similar. Sure, like, trust and me. he fought with Canadians, by the way, so yeah. shout out. They were, sure. uh, they, people forget, they were there. I think yep. it was, what, Gold Beach? Sword beach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so I just tell people, I'm like, if the, 
if the dark side, if the what's the name of those dark souls, the Belial guys, what are they? Sons of Belial. Yeah. So, sons of Belial. Yeah, if the sons of Belial are reincarnated in Davos and the Club of Rome and they're running the government <laughs> and all that. Um, yeah. then and they're in charge of everything. And they they control and every single person you see out there is a shill, by the way. That I don't know if you know this, but Michael everybody's a shill that, that's what the internet oh, right. tell you right everybody's right, right. in on everybody's well, evil. including you and me I mean, yeah, yeah, we're shills we i'm actually live streaming i'm live streaming from davos with david right now we're getting a so, beta, you know in bitcoin to say this we just had champagne with klaus schwab no i'm just yeah kidding. i would i would yeah, never so cool, I would break then, the yeah. champagne glass right and poke him in the eye all right it's freezing but the yeah. main point is that when you get into that downward cycle of of your of your mindset with this remember yeah. That if the dark side was the only show in town, if it was in full control of everything, right. how in the actual F yeah. are the things happening, happening, and they're being exposed, and we're even able to be on the internet watching it happen, talking right. about it, making like now you want to know what possible? real you want to know what real fear is? Like read the gulag archipelago. That's fear. Yeah. Like you're in a gulag pre-internet no television in Siberia and no one cares. Yep. Yeah. And you're all like, that's, and, yeah. that's scary. That's terrifying. Like, uh, being in Cambodia be during the yeah. Pol Pot revolution, that's terrifying. Uh, being in, you know, Poland when Soviets and the Nazis invade from both sides and you're in the middle of the city of Warsaw, that's terrifying. This is annoying. <laughs> but it's not anything I'm even like, I, I look at these people and it's like, I always picture like, take Bill Gates, take Klaus, or take any of these people and just put them in a t-shirt and shorts in a bingo room. Are you afraid of them? Really? Like take away the big screen and the, you know, Darth Sidious uh, epaulets that these freaks wear and all this, just put them in a bingo room you know, in an old folks home, are you afraid of them? You know, what you should be afraid of are your fellow people that are not only complicit, but actively trying to bring this on without knowing it. That's way scarier than me. Or you rat know? you out um, to the authorities. Right. That's right. something that, you know, it's part of the reason I left uh, a Democrat city, Chicago, because I just couldn't. You know, it doesn't matter how strong you are. It's just you you get to a point where you're like, it's not worth my energy to be even silent. Like in my own apartment, I was the only person that was not vaccinated, the only person that never wore a mask in a building of 200 people in the West Loop of Chicago. And the looks I got every day, even if I steeled myself, it's like, why am I going through this? I don't have yeah. to do this. So I'm going to go somewhere where people don't really care, you know. Mm. Um, so I think that's the thing we should focus on is like, how can you, and then the other thing too, is like, okay, if you don't like that, well then what are you doing exactly to bring about yeah. the world you want? Like, you that's why I don't like this. Oh, it's like, first of all, I don't like victims, you know, cause there are real victims. Like, I don't know, thousands of children that are blown up in certain parts of the world, let's say. Um, who literally are victims. A bomb falls, you don't know, and that's the end of your life. 
If you have a choice, you're not in. Take your pick. Like, or ex- exactly, yeah. Ask you know Virginia Jufre and her friends like mm-hmm. what a victim is when Ghislaine is saying like I'll kill you if you tell anybody in the '90s and things like this. And I mean, imagine the trauma these people went through when they couldn't tell what we now know is just uh, like oh yeah, that's that's uh, true. And it's like, could you imagine her frustration for 25 years trying to say? Yeah, by the way, there's these islands in the Caribbean and all the elites go there and like rape children. And it's like, oh, like she's, you know, she's crazy. That's my, you know, that's my daughter. She's just crazy. Imagine the, the, the pain of that. Like we don't have to go through anything of that. All we have to do is really nothing. You know, we just have to maintain, you know, it's kind of like the strategy that the Soviets used after the Battle of Moscow. It's like, we're not going to go right on an offense. It's kind of exactly what Putin is doing right now, destroying the NATO army of Ukraine. We're not going to go on an offensive. We could get to Kiev tomorrow. We just got to hold this and you'll blow yourself up. You know, Lloyd Austin will keep sending you to your death. We We don't need to do anything. And it's the same thing. Like, let these people... Keep playing their game. They'll eventually blow the whole thing up through a leak, through betrayal. It's like one will turn on Fauci, one will turn on Gates. His wife already left him. He's on Epstein Island. Like, let that list get more disseminated. Let those investigations go on. It's like you don't even got to worry about that. What you should be worried about is getting excited for once this bullshit is gone, now it's up to you. You know, you can't blame anybody anymore. And I always tell people, I think a lot of people secretly don't want the world to be a happy, peaceful place because then you don't got somebody to point to and say, oh, it's it's Klaus Schwab. It's like, okay, what if he vaporized today? Well, it's what if all evil was removed from Earth today? How quickly would it come back? Probably quite quickly until humanity looks inward and says, hey, actually, these are people just like us. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe some are <laughs> something else, but it's like, for the most part, as far as we can tell, these are made of the same things. So what does that say about us? Maybe as a collective, we are just still in need of this ekpyrosis, whether that be like you say, a mind cleansing by fire or a physical event or a perhaps... Yeah, perhaps there is some sort of like natural catastrophe in a certain part of the world that, you know, uh, the world, the Davos falls into the ocean underneath uh, Europe, like into a subterranean river like Atlantis. And maybe that's what's coming. Who knows? But I just think it's a very exciting time because from the reviews I've read and the notes I get from people, uh, you know, overwhelmingly people have said, you know, thank you for not just, you know, showing me this very complicated subject, like you said, in a very exciting way. But, you know, I actually didn't realize how many parallels there are between the world then and the world now, you know, because everybody loves to say it's just like Rome. And it's like, in fact, it is quite similar to Rome. I mean, Rome was destroyed through mass immigration before its final collapse. Um, yep. of Gothic tribes and things like this. People always think it was just the Goths coming over the walls, but before it was an immigration crisis on the border that actually led to, you know, the opening of that frontier and the eventual 
you know, influx of, of barbarians and the destruction. But well, and we, yeah, it's like, and you know, the, and we met the women were, they, were they had, they had the woman only fans. They had the ma the male, you know, and yeah, they, yeah, they definitely did have the, the Romans had their own perversions, you know? Oh, yeah. And who's to say that the Romans were not themselves a kind of vestige of, Atlantis, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's actually funny I say vestige because what was the tradition in Rome was the Vestal Virgins guarding the, the the eternal flame that they symbolized that never went out. They had a fire burning all the time. And if that flame went out, they said that Rome is extinguished, you know, and the fire finally went out before the final destruction, quote unquote, of Western Roman Empire. But what's interesting is they had a flame like that in Atlantis, too, according to Frederick Oliver, that came right out of a rock that nobody could extinguish until the final destruction when it itself went out. And I just wondered to myself, like, you know, Italy, which was called Tyrrhenia in Plato's account, was an Atlantean colony, according to Plato. So it's like I really do look at all of this as Manly Hall said, you know, we shouldn't just be obsessed with finding a circular city or even a pyramid that's out of place as interesting as that is but step back and look at in 10,000 years David if you were looking for traces of the British Empire and somebody said well I found this you know weird uh artifact in you know Bombay and then I found another one in West Africa but then I can't find the the, the big clock tower so this couldn't be the British Empire. It's like, well, England was an island that had a global empire in 1775 that stretched to all corners of the earth, and we all speak its language. Yeah. So why couldn't Atlantis do the same thing with a bigger island in more favorable weather with better technology? Of course it could. In the Atlantic Ocean, for God's sake. You know, it's like, it's where does that come from? Yeah, exactly. So again, I tell people like, don't it's a great myth that like doing good investigation requires like finding something that's like nobody has ever found that's actually very difficult to do like the yeah. more you read the less you actually realize you can originally find i think i accomplished that only in a few parts of the book where it's like no one on earth has ever said this or thought this but that's not important what's important is can we piece this story together? Can we be intellectually honest? Can we not have an agenda? Like, I don't care if we find it or don't. I just want to show people, like, look, this is what Here's I found. Here's what we got, yeah. And go from there. You know, and I really appreciate, like, that's always been the tone of Graham Hancock books. It's always kind of like a, hmm, could be. It never... Yeah, we're keeping our minds open here. We're yeah. Just, we're just interested in it. We're trying to... There's something to it. Like, you've presented yes. enough just in the show and the previous show and in your book to be like, there's definitely a fire behind the smoke that we're seeing here. That's and right. And it, it just... To me, this subject's always been so powerful because humanity has amnesia. We don't... We're they still do. battling. All the religions are still battling. All the scientists are still battling. Everybody's still battling we're lost at sea truth is not known widely no um and we're we don't even know where we came from we think we do but we don't and so i feel right. like if we could solve the riddle of our origin or even uh these missing the, the maybe the reason we all feel like there's a missing piece to us if i ask the average person in there you sure. talk to ecologists like i feel like there's something missing all these lost <laughs> teens that are trying to identify as freaking and you know 
but let me show you the point. All oh, these sure. guys that are identifying with all these things, mm. they're in, a, in the crisis that humanity is in because maybe the sure. piece missing is the piece about our origins and where we came from. And it stems through, mm. and then there's a memory of it, and then obviously the trauma of our time, and there's and then the, well, the chemicals and all that. But there's the original, <laughs> it's, some, it's many things, but the original uh, pang to try to find yourself. Where am I? What am I? What, the philosophical questions. Yeah. Well, it, it comes from the fact that Nobody can just easily walk up to you and go, oh, it's an open and shut case. This is where we can right. see what we are. You know? Right, right, right. No, and it's so true. Um, and I think, you know, it reminded me, I, I'm sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it, it oh, reminded no. me of, uh, I think a quote in, I use in the book from Carl Jung, who believed mm -hmm. in reincarnation. And he said, like, I always feel like my life is just a kind of loose thread in a long series of fragments that I'll never know anything about, you know? from the collective unconscious and it's like i kind of feel that way too like I, I i've encountered people and i'm like i know i've didn't like we have gotten into some weird shit in like ancient rome like i i, I know that sounds really strange but it's like i know that you know and you were at I that remember, party man i remember that party that we yeah or like party. you just have like this curiosity like uh yeah. i i don't know ever since i was a kid uh like i'm not a mason i'm not into these things but i was obsessed with the knights templar i don't know why my parents didn't know why i'd always dress like a knight templar for halloween my mother was always like what is this like what is this this uniform this like what what are you supposed to be she didn't know anything about the knights templar. i would always be reading books on the templars and the knights of malta couldn't tell you why. I'm not religious. I don't belong to a Masonic order. I'm not a Knight of Columbus. But when I see those pictures of them, I'm like, oh, I was in there. Like, I absolutely was in Jerusalem in a night with the Red Cross. I couldn't tell you why. I couldn't prove it. Maybe in a Dolores Cannon, like, past life <laughs> regression. But it's like, you know, I don't, I would be crazy to, like, fight that, you know, because it's like, it's like uh, I always tell people when my students, because I'm still a you know, history professor, and I always tell my students, like, you know, it's good to analyze things, but sometimes it's good not to know, you know, yeah. like as a musician myself, like when I actually sit down and like plot out the chord changes and like the key change, it almost pisses me off. Like, wait, that's the only reason that song's cool? Cause it's a one, four, five with a six added to this chord. And it's like, I don't almost want to know that I'm almost like, I would prefer the, the mystery of it. Like, yeah. Like this chord makes me feel that way. Cause I don't know. Mm. I don't care to know. I don't care to know why I'm interested in Atlantis. It's not something I ever thought I would be interested in. It's just kind of something that you went with it. I went with it. You know, just like you, could you imagine five years ago that you would be doing your Cult of the Medics documentary? Like, probably not. No, <laughs> like, no. I don't it think was, any of again, us. Again, an act of um, muse or something hit me. Like, you know right. what I mean? And then you're funny, man, Michael, there's so many things we have in common. What, uh, what's your sign, by the way, if you don't mind? You don't have to uh, say it. In sidereal astrology, a Gemini. Ah, in interesting. In tropical cancer. Okay, cool. That's yeah. awesome. I was only asking, I'm an Aries. I mean, I'm born in April. And oh, okay. um, but the one thing you're saying about the, the night thing, mm. I didn't have it as specific as like a Templar night or anything like that. But from day one, I can go <laughs> back 
and look at the original drawings I used to sketch. And it was battles mm. of medieval battles. I'd be sitting in church, tuning out and just drawing yeah. these massive stickman battles of medieval wars. Sure. And then I had this deep curiosity of the medieval period right up to this day. I love yeah. anything like Lord of the Rings, medieval fantasy, medieval, anything. Like I, exactly. I go to, I went to Europe and my mind like did a mm. backflip because I'm like walking over ruins that I'm like, I've freaking been here. I feel like I've been to yeah. Ireland. I've been to Newgrange. I've, I've stormed castles. I went to Buckingham Palace and I'm like something, I just, there's something in me and it makes you wonder why there's no other precedent in my life that would have said that I would have found this interest naturally well, my parents didn't even know where it came from you know it's interesting no and you know it reminds me i i put it in there um because you know part of the book deals with like the reality and the evidence and the possibility of reincarnation and so i actually what you just said reminds me that you know people might be surprised that you know general george s Patton, you know believed in reincarnation and he wrote a poem about it he wrote a poem on reincarnation i don't know yeah that. and it was something like I think it's like, uh, and so through a glass darkly, the age old strife I see, though I fought in many guises, many names, but always me, mm. you know? And he used to, in the movie, uh, Patton, they allude to that poem, which is funny because it's a quite unknown poem. And, you know, he pulls the Jeep over in North Africa in the ruins of Carthage as he's doing a recon with General Bradley. And he says, he's like, I remember this place. And, you know, Bradley's like, what are you talking about? Like, we, we just got here, George. He's like, no. He's like, the, the Carthaginians were coming up this road, Brad. You don't remember? And it's like, but he really in real life believed that he had, like you just said, hmm. gone through this warrior process until he became General Patton, that it wasn't his first battle. And he says, I fought in Flanders. I fought in the Pirates. I fought in Rome. And... Wow. I mean, that actually makes logical sense. I mean, what's more silly that you come from nothing and then you develop into this thing and then it's gone and then nobody like, like that actually makes no sense. Logic. No, it doesn't. That's the quite opposite. Actually, what I always tell people is reincarnation is to me much more intuitively logical. And I prove it kind of on a uh, from a position of like simplicity, which is, uh, well, the concept of death was created by living beings. So if it's categorically different than life, we can say nothing about it because it was created in that condition called life. And so what is there to talk about really? Um, well, because if it's categorically different, what could we know about it? Right. How could you know where you're going if you couldn't say what it was, if it was indeed nothing? But reincarnation is just like, you know, as Dolores Cannon says, that you, you know, go into a kind of latent period where you kind of evaluate, not in a way of like a scorecard, but you kind of evaluate the lessons and then you choose. I'm going to come back at the final battle 2025. And then part of the contract is you forget so that you actually play on hard mode. Right. Until you in the process of life, maybe realize like, oh, like I was this. And then you just keep doing this until you attain some level that's, you know, you can graduate to another galaxy or another universe. You know, I really hope my next life I can graduate. I hope we get to go to like Andromeda next time or something. I just want to get out. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people, everybody always says, I, I want to come, 
I want to be in Miami Beach in 3200 when the golden age kicks off and oh, see yeah, what that's all about. Yeah, be like, be I'll take a pause for 1200 else. years. We'll come back yeah. around then. Yeah, let's go to Andromeda for 1200 years during the Perosis. Yeah, and then come. And then we'll Michael, come back last thing party. I was going to say, um, and then there's just one, because we're going to wrap soon, but there's one little yes. subject about Corsetti's stuff I wanted you to address. But um, sure. the uh, thing about the reincarnation, the one thing I look at is nature. And nature's your greatest right. teacher. It's the template you can see. And we're going through the seasons and you see nature die and then be born again. And we watch that happen. We go through fall, then winter. We're in the winter months. And then we come mm -hmm. back through spring, summer. And I, I look at this beautiful, I got all these beautiful trees on my property here. Sure. There's a nice Japanese maple that came with the house. The woman who used to live here was an avid oh, wow. gardener and she planted these amazing trees. And I look at this Japanese maple and right now it's just a bunch of sticks, but yeah. in a few months, it's going to be just starting to bloom. And then it's exactly. going to go back to being nothing. And then it's going to be something. It's going to reanimate. Right. And I'm like, well, if nature's doing this, it just makes sense that, you know, this, there's, there's something bigger in the cycles of the soul that we call the soul or consciousness. That's, that's right. also doing that. And I really, again, I, I have to, cite um dev mishra who who really brought to my attention because i'm trained as an intellectual historian who identifies how philosophy changed in historical time periods that's how i was trained by um by by, by my master by my master darren mcmahon here who just sent me this excellent book he just wrote but you know what we studied was like you know, you take an idea, like I studied the Enlightenment, just to be quick here. And it's like, oh, we just take for granted, like, well, people have always thought that the Enlightenment was a good thing and that it, you know, was the end of superstition and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, when you look at the, you know, past 200 years, you realize that that's just one fragment that we chose in today's world to pick for our explanation of what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And so... Dev Mishra made a good point to answer your question about the cyclical thing. And he's like, until Darwin in The Descent of Man, basically with no evidence, and it's a hilarious line he found where Darwin is aware of the cyclical Greek idea, the cyclical Egyptian idea, the cyclical Sumerian idea, even of, of the processional, you know, 25,000 year cycle. He was aware of that. But he's like, that's not a very cheerful way to look at reality. And given our technological advances and our supremacy over the natives, we must assume that we have basically like broken that pattern. And we just went with that since the 19th century. Like, okay, like thousands of years of recorded history where all the ancient cultures, even Western Greeks thought it's cyclical. There is no... You know, there's a golden age, silver age, bronze age, iron age. And then it's like England, a imperial superpower, just decides to justify their own actions by, no, we are the supreme technological force in the world. And then, of course, that spreads to America. And by extension, after World War II, the world adopts American ways of thinking. And it's like, but that's an important thing to remember. Just like it's important to remember that for the past 2,000 years, until Michael Shermer goofballs tried to tell you that you're crazy. Like, you think you're smarter than Plato? Like, you're... But you're definitely not smarter.
player. You're definitely not smarter than Francis Bacon, Montaigne, Giancarlo, Rinaldi, Ignatius Donnelly. Like, that's a hard, tall order if they're all crazy. And so I always tell people, like, even if you're not a trained intellectual historian, just remember in your own life, think of stories that you tell. And then think, did I tell that story differently last year? Or what do people think about me? Did they always think that? When did this thing become who I am? Well, that applies to history. But people aren't taught to think. They're just taught, this is the way it is. Here's the line, 2000 BC, it goes up. And here we are. It's like, uh, where's that line in reality? I wake up, the sun comes up, and then the moon comes out later. But there's no line. I, I don't see a date in the air that says 2024. Right, right. We you know what I mean? So it's like... Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct that the the simpler you make it, like, oh, like, it gets cold, that tree dies, then it comes back. Hmm. I wonder if that happens too. Like, but you would be called crazy because some somebody would say, well, actually, we've analyzed the decay rate of, you know, human cells and there's no electrical impulses after. It's like, what are you talking about? It's and there's like no peer reviewed studies. No peer reviewed studies on reincarnation. There's the Royal Society on this. So, yeah, exactly. Right. So, well, Michael, this is, man, we could talk on so many things. I love chatting with you. Let's just wrap with you wanted to mention some things about, I can't remember the name of the ridge or whatever that Corsetti was pointing out. Do you want to hit that oh, a little bit? Well, all I wanted to say, I think I talked about it enough. Um, I really just wanted to say that, you know, I respect all people that are interested in alternative views of history. I really mean that. I, I don't have any beef with anybody. But just remember when you hear, as Manly Hall said, you know, and as Plato said, this is an empire that had dominion over a lot of parts of this earth. As confirmed by evidence in Mexico, in parts of North America, in parts of North Africa, which could include the reshot structure if it indeed is man-made. We can't prove that. Um, Randall Carlson has provided a very strong refutation of that theory, and I would tend to believe that. But as to the, it's the location of Atlantis, um, is London the location of the British Empire? Mm, yeah, and I wouldn't even say it's the capital city. Because the capital city was on the island of Poside, which I think is conclusively that island that appears in the Azores when you drain the ocean, because that's an island that would have been above sea level exactly when Plato said this existed. And it's in front of the Straits of Gibraltar. And the Atlanteans in their final battle before the Cataclysmos was entering the Straits of Gibraltar from the west and assaulting the Hellenes led by Athena, who defeated them and saved the Mediterranean before the cataclysm. So it doesn't talk about them coming up from Mauritania, walking down the road and, you know, pushing their boats into the ocean from the beach. It's you're looking for things that don't have to be this complicated. Like, I don't know what the research structure is. I have no idea. I've never been there. I've never taken a core sample. You know, it's interesting what we know. There, it's weird. It doesn't but mean it that's yeah. Atlantis. No. And again, that would not, even if that was built by the Atlanteans, that still wouldn't be Atlantis. It would be a unknown circular city of Atlantean architecture within the 
empire of Atlantis. Right. So I'm trying to get people to say, get rid of the city and get rid of the island because the island was not called Atlantis. The island, as Manly Hall correctly understood, was called Poseid or Poseidonis. Mm. And Plato had an incomplete story because it was transmitted forehand. So he just said there was this culture, this empire called Atlantis. And on that, you know, island, there was a circular city. But it's more than the island. So it's like, it amazes me when I see Discovery Channel, 30 million views. The search for the lost city of Atlantis. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. (laughs) What are you talking about? Like, how did this get past production? Yeah. You guys didn't read Plato. They ju- they're just looking for ratings, bro. I've spoken to a lot of these producers. I've been on these ancient alien shows and whatnot. And I'm like, they're just looking for what's the catchy new theory, even though they've done some good stuff and it's good to get it in the mainstream. Um, mm. It's so watered down. They got to go to people like you. They got to come to podcasts like this. Uh, they right. got to go to Unslaved and these other formats where you're going to learn the details. You're going to get the bigger picture and and the the great commentary to go with it. So well done michael man like i can't say it enough uh you guys got to follow michael over on x i'm also going to show you his website please go and check it out it is an awesome site um anything about the site you want to direct people to specifically that they should know about here yeah you know i've got a link at the bottom if you want to go to the bottom real quick actually all those links on top i believe are interactive Yeah, that's the first one. But those resources are very interesting because each of those books and each of those books is an actually an interactive link. So you can read these great old books that are, you know, out of print um, from an Internet archive. They're in a public record and some of them are great. And um, if you ever need to contact me, you can reach me at the bottom of the page and uh, you'll be here. Get them on your show, guys, if you're listening. And there's Phaeton there at the bottom. Phaeton, the charioteer. Think of the chariot card in the arrow. That's a whole other thing. (laughs) Well, Michael, uh, go. Oh, and by the way, it's michaellaflemme.com, just so people know. I'm going to put the links Mm -hmm. over. I'll put it in the description afterwards. I'll put it over on my Telegram, my X. Those are my two main social medias. Um, But uh, go and support the book. Go buy the book. Get the book. Check it out. It's loaded with the sources that we're all craving in this movement uh the research mm. you've done is just amazing michael and we'll definitely thank you, have to do more shows in the future on this stuff no thank you i really appreciate it and i think you know it's such a great thing that we have uh great hosts with a great audience to you know share information that's uh you know most people when you're on a date first date they don't really want to talk about this stuff so i gotta always hold back for these shows because uh you can get into a lot of trouble. So it's nice because I think um, the world is finally slowly, but surely, as you said, waking up to, you know, maybe we don't know really anything. Mm -hmm. And maybe these people that are talking about these subjects aren't crazy because they don't sound crazy. And there seems to be other people from the past that I've just never heard of. Like how many people have heard that, excellent manly hall lecture you know i had not even ever heard that lecture and i wrote oh, a book on atlantis for seven years you know think about that yeah and you should you so, love it. If, if you keep going i love that it, yeah if you listen to the I whole will thing, listen to it it's mine yeah so thank you i really My appreciate pleasure. it david 
My and, pleasure. Um, this is why I started a show, Michael, so that I can have these conversations too, because very few people around me want to talk about it. So this is why we do this. So guys, michaelafrem.com, check it out. Visions of Atlantis. We're going to do more in the future. Uh, check it out on X as well. If you found value in this show, help me out. Share it far and wide. Leave a like, mm -hmm. leave a comment. And I'm definitely going to have more coming your way this year, 2024, leading up to the end of the cycle. Let's see what's happening. I'm going to cover it the best I can. And stay yes. positive. Keep your mind curious. Keep it sharp. Stay healthy. And we'll catch everybody again soon. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.